Don't worry, I'm not preaching, just reading. (laughs) Good morning, church. I have the privilege of reading the scripture today that Larry will be going through. Um, It's Acts 11, 19 through 30. There are pew Bibles under the seat in front of you if you do not have a Bible. It's on page 90, or I'm not 90, 920. Again, that's Acts 11, 19 through 30. And while you're turning there, I will introduce myself. My name is John D'Alonzo. Um, I'm married to Jen, and we have a cute little daughter in the back um, named Eliana. And the Lord has blessed us with a baby boy coming in April. So thankful for that, yeah. I've also, um, um, the Lord rescued me probably in my teens and my wife as well. So. Let's read. Um, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men in Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a, many, a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were f- first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Would you pray with me? Um, Praise you, Lord, for giving us uh, your word, giving us your scripture, um, that in it, Lord, we can know how to live. In it, we would know um, who you are, and how to worship you, Father. So we thank you for that blessing. We thank you, Lord, for the, the congregation here. We thank you, Lord, for being able to join uh, as unified believers, uh, pointing to the one who we owe everything to, Lord. And I pray, Father, um, as you bring Larry up here and speak through him, I pray, Lord, that our ears would be prepared to receive the word, that our hearts would be ready, and that you would be honored and glorified through it. In your great and glorious name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, It's a blessing to worship the Lord together. Uh, I'm thankful for you. I don't know that I say, I say I love you. That's a good thing to say, but I'm thankful for you. Uh, I'm thankful for your eagerness to hear the word, to receive the word, uh, as I've been able to observe that and enjoy that with you for the past many, many years. So thankful for you. Uh, It's a joy to be able to open up the Word together. Uh, During the early part of uh, the Protestant Reformation, there was a preacher in England named Bernard Gilpin. Uh, He was uh, preaching the gospel during the time uh, in which there was a great persecution under the reign of uh, Queen Mary Tudor. Anyone Anyone know Queen Mary's nickname? Bloody Mary, yes, that's not a good (laughs) nickname. Okay, she was nicknamed that, tragically, because of her regime's persecution of Protestant uh, dissenters. She was a Roman Catholic, and so she was seeking to stamp out this reformation of of true biblical worship and teaching, and and that led to hundreds of executions under her reign for uh, what was called heresy. Uh, Bernard Gilpin was one of these preachers 
preaching the true word of God, and he was arrested, and he was being taken to London uh, to be tried, and then almost certainly these trials were pretty much a sham, and he was almost certainly going to be killed under the rule of Queen Mary. Uh, Bernard Gilpin, he was known, uh, his favorite Bible verse was a verse that I, I trust may be the favorite Bible verse of some of you. It was Romans 8, 28. Uh, any, any kid among us here, let's say 12 and under, do you know what Romans 8, 28 says? Anyone? Any brave hand want to go up if you know Romans 8, 28? All right. Th- kids, this would be a good one. I know you're memorizing stuff in Promised Land. This may be one you've already memorized in Promised Land and forgotten, but it's a good one. We know that in all things, God works together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Bernard Gilpin loved that passage of scripture, and he would quote it all the time. And even as he had been arrested and was going towards London, going towards his almost certain death, he just kept saying, I have no doubt that this will turn out for my good. And he just kept saying that, and the soldiers who were transporting him laughed at him, and they mocked him. And then as they were, as they were traveling, he, he fell off of his horse, and he broke his foot. And this hindered their travel. They had to go find lodging in an inn for some days before they could resume travel. But the soldiers just were laughing at him and mocking him all the more. Oh, this is working for your good. How's your broken foot? Is that working for your good also? And he said, even after breaking his foot, I have no doubt that even this painful accident will turn out for good. So finally, some days go by, uh, a week or two. uh, There's some different reports about this story. But uh, as they were nearing London, the church bells were ringing and people were sort of wondering as they were coming to the city, what's going on? What's the clamor? What's, what's happening? And they said, haven't, haven't you heard? Queen Mary has died. There's no more persecution of the evangelicals. Queen Elizabeth was now in charge, and she herself was a Protestant. And Bernard Gilpin, who was now a freed man, turned to the soldiers who had so maliciously and gleefully mocked his faith, and he said, did I not tell you that this would work out for good? Because of his injury, which no doubt was painful, uh, he was delayed, and through that delay, his life was saved. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the ESV, okay? What I said a couple minutes ago was from memory. I think I said the same basic thing, but it w- that's Romans 8.28 in the English Standard Version. It's a great truth, is it not? It, it's, a, it's that truth that enables us to sing with confidence what we sang earlier, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. There's lots of other good songs we sing along those lines. God moves in a mysterious way. Further along conveys that same truth. Uh, There's a wonderful hymn. I'm not sure that we've sung it, but it's a wonderful hymn called Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. I know the song, a more modern song, Blessed Be Your Name, is a precious song to some of you. And the, the truths that, that, that those songs herald stabilize and comfort and even cheer the soul that is tossed by various kinds of trials. And, and I believe that our certainty and our conviction of these things, we know that in all things God works together for good. We, we know that. I think our knowing that will be strengthened as we study this portion of Uh, the book of Acts, which John just read for us. Uh, As we've just jumped back into our study of the book of Acts about a month ago, we've seen some amazing events. We've we've 
seen and we've considered the conversion of Saul, this one who was breathing murderous threats against the church, and we've seen his conversion and now him being an apologist, a defender of the very faith that he was trying to destroy. Uh, Over the past couple of weeks, we saw the conversion of this Roman centurion, Cornelius, and his household as the gospel came to the Gentiles. And as we, as we come here to verse 19 of chapter 11, we're, we're going back now some time to events that were narrated back at the end of chapter 7 and the, and the beginning of chapter 8. For us as a church, it was April, I believe, way back when I was on sabbatical. Did you want to hear any more about my sabbatical? No, I'm not going to tell you a story, okay? There's more stories yet to tell, but I'm not going to tell you one of them. We studied chapter 7 and 8 last uh, April, but what's happening here is after giving us some pictures of the church's growth, Luke is now returning to what he began to tell us in chapter 7 and 8, and he's, he's continuing that story. In chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, we read of the death of uh, the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And uh, we saw back then if you were here, if you ever read the book of Acts, that murder of Stephen uh, set off a wave of persecution against the followers of Christ uh, in Jerusalem, and it scattered those believers into the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's what we see depicted in chapter 8. Uh, but it's, it's that persecution. Apparently, there were some believers in this persecution. They were scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria, but now Luke uh, is telling us here in chapter 11, verse 19, about more who were, who were traveling even farther. That's why it says there, those who were scattered, verse 19, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. You want more of the details of that, you can go back and read chapter, uh, really chapter 6, 7, and 8 will give you all of that uh, story. It's that persecution that Luke is referring to as the gospel comes here to the city of Antioch. And there is an awful lot to take in from this passage of Scripture. Uh, I was saying to uh, the Elwells, I think it was, right on your way in, I I was just looking at this passage this week, I'm thinking there's a sermon series to be preached uh, from this paragraph, or these two paragraphs uh, in the book of Acts. So I'm just going to be able to touch on some highlights of the passage for you this morning. But as as I looked at it this week, uh, it, just, it just struck me that the banner flying over this passage was Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So what I, what I want to do uh, from this passage, what I want to think about with you this morning is to consider some of the great good that we see here in the book uh, or in the church at Antioch. Uh, I think we'll see much that is for our own instruction and, and emulation. Then in, in looking at that great good, I want us to note and celebrate the fact that it is clearly God who is the worker of all this good and that he was doing that work even in the midst of all things. So, again, I can't say everything that I'd like to about all this good fruit that we see in the church of Antioch. You could keep the conversations going. Uh, we say this from time to time. The sermon, is, this isn't meant to be the last time. The, the sermon goes out. Love it for that, that word that is spoken to be reverberating through the life of the church in conversations throughout the week. There's much to talk about by way of application here, but let me just show you some highlights and some of the good that we see here. I think the first thing we see is just the earnest resolve of these Christians to spread the good news of Jesus. Uh, Just seeing how the church in Antioch came into existence teaches us much and is worthy of our imitation. Look again at verse uh, 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now we're, we're going to come back to this, this scattering because of persecution, but for now I think at least we can say that these Christians 
we're experiencing hardship. These, these disciples were religious refugees. They were forced because of the murder of Stephen and the persecution that arose there in Jerusalem. They were rushed to flee from their homes. They were forced to relocate totally different uh, surroundings. Antioch, we know, at least the uh, historians tell me, I'm not much of a geography guy myself, but it's about 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch. So that'd be like being displaced from here to like Pittsburgh. No comments on Pittsburgh, okay? I'm just, just saying that's how far it was. Think of the temptations that might have existed for these believers. Totally, you know, you know how disorienting uh, that can be to just be in new surroundings. Uh, missionaries speak of, of the reality of culture shock. Some of you have experienced that when you've gone on missions trips. But there's not an indication here that they were pouting, that they were disillusioned, that they were embittered. They were forced against their wills to get out of Jerusalem. They were on the run, but as they ran, they carried the word of God with them. I think that's very encouraging. That's some good fruit. Some of them, we see, went to the Jews as they were going along the way, but others of them, verse 20, were taking the word to the Hellenists, that is, I believe in this context, Greeks. They were taking the gospel to the Gentiles, even as we saw Peter going to the Gentile household of Cornelius last week. They did what we all do with good news. They spread that good news far and wide. If you've got good news, you don't like to hold that good news to yourself. You want to tell that good news to others. We were, uh, about a month ago, we were down in Ocean City for a Bible conference, and I met a young man down there named Sebastian. And uh, we, we, we got to know each other a little bit. We played mini golf one, one uh, we, didn't we play mini golf with him? Yeah. So we just got to know him a little bit, hear a little bit of his story, how he came to know the Lord. He was telling me he was, he's, he's in a relationship. He's, he's a young guy, like 20, somewhere in the 25 years old or so. And um, he was telling me about how he was getting ready to propose to his girlfriend, and, and it had been a long time, and there had been some challenges with the family. They hadn't really been receptive to him at first, and he was just telling me a little bit about his, that story, and, you know, I just, you know, it's like listening to him and just trying to encourage him for his, his faithfulness, his desire to honor her family, and, you know, just, I kind of said something as we parted ways, you know, like, let me know how it goes. Let me know how it turns out, and I think I prayed for him that, that day when we were there. And that was, I mean, honestly, that was the last I thought of it. Last Sunday, I got text messages from Sebastian. She said yes. And there was pictures. I hardly knew this guy. I I am not thinking if he had gotten engaged. I hope Sebastian doesn't listen to this message. But uh, if he had had not been engaged, I would have never thought about it. But he wanted to spread good news to anybody that would hear it. That's what we do with good news. And saints, the message of Jesus is good news, right? Why would we not spread it wherever we go? It was the good news of the Lord Jesus that they were preaching. When it says there at the end of verse 20, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. The reason why I'm talking about good news specifically is there, there are many words that could be used, uh, Greek words that is, for the word preach. This isn't the word classically preach. This is the word for bring good news. They were bringing the good news of Jesus. That's what they were doing. They were bringing the good news that Jesus, and it's hard, you know, I was just listening to a a talk by, actually at that same conference, there was a talk by a missionary named uh, Brooks Buser. I don't know if I said his name correctly. Buser, I believe is how you say his name, and you should listen to this message. Please ask me after the sermon. Tell me where to get that message from Brooks Buser. I would love to tell you. That may be the most important thing that you hear from me, actually. That's not true, because I'm going to preach the gospel to you here briefly. But get this message. But he, he said, you know, when you, go to a, when you go across a culture to share the gospel, people will not understand the message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John if they don't first understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's what he found when he took the gospel to a completely unreached, unreached group of people in Papua New Guinea. So I don't know exactly where 
in this preaching of the Lord Jesus, I don't know where they started. If they started with the lordship of God himself, God the creator and ruler and upholder and sustainer of all things who rules because he's the creator of all, it is his right to govern and rule over all, including us. Even now he's giving us life and breath and everything. And how could one who has given us life and breath not be worthy of our allegiance? And yet we have Genesis 3, we have sinned against him. We have chosen to resist and reject his authority to be an authority and ruler for ourselves. And, and because of that, we deserve his righteous and just punishment. But in God's kindness, he sent Jesus the Lord. And Jesus the Lord came from heaven to earth, not to bring the vengeance upon us that we so richly deserve, but actually to bear vengeance in himself. He came and he lived a completely perfect life, and he was crucified, suffering the, the judgment for sin that we deserved for our rebellion against God. He took that upon himself, and, and he did that so that we could receive pardon by trusting in the Lord Jesus, by submitting ourselves to the Lord Jesus. We could find forgiveness of our sins and new life in him. And, and God demonstrated that he himself truly was the Lord by raising Jesus up from the dead and made him victorious, showed him to be victorious over sin and its just punishment. And he now summons all people, Jesus summons all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins and find refuge in him. Maybe they said something like that. They were, they were preaching the good news. And so I say to you today, if you have come this morning and you are in a state of rebellion against God, you've not come to Jesus and received Jesus. If you are living your life uh, with the key ethic being self, self-reliance and self-sufficiency and self-exaltation, the call to you today is to turn to the Lord Jesus, to recognize yourself, to be a guilty sinner before God and submit yourself to Jesus and trust in his cleansing sacrifice for your salvation. That's the message that these brothers and sisters, I trust they were sisters, we're not told about the ladies in particular, but I trust there were some sisters there spreading that word as well. This is the message that we're called to go. And so even when you're displaced from where you want to be, God has you where you are that you might spread the good news of Jesus and call other people to repentance. I think that's one takeaway for us from this passage is that we should be taking the gospel with us everywhere that we go. These were ordinary Christians. These were not the apostles. We, we read in, in the earlier part of the chapter about Peter, right, the apostle Peter and his evangelism to the household of Cornelius. These people were ordinary Christians. I say ordinary meaning not the apostles because we're told in Acts chapter eight when this scattering happened, it said the believers, the disciples were scattered except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. These were ordinary Christians. We don't know their names. We're not even told their names here in the passage. We're told a lot of names in the Bible. We're not told the names of these people. They were ordinary, unknown people, but they loved Jesus, and they kept talking about Jesus wherever they went. So much so that as the gospel took root in Antioch, here's a sermon in and of itself, it was in Antioch where they first came to be called Christians. There's some discussion amongst scholars whether this um, term Christian was a, a pejorative term, was, a, was a, a term of derision and scorn, or if it was just a recognition by the people around them. that they, they, It's like there's Jews and there's Gentiles here, but they're not doing the Jewish way itself, but they're, they're not living like Gentiles. That's, what are they? What's... Who are these people? What are they about? And they recognized them. I imagine because of how consistently they were speaking about Jesus, they were the Christ ones. We, we, we do that with people. We categorize people. We have terms sometimes for people uh, based on what they love or what we perceive by spending some time with them makes them tick, right? We might say of someone that she's a fashionista. I've, I don't think I've ever used that word before the last, <laughs> that moment, okay? 
It's the first thing that came to my mind. Or that someone is, has a real green thumb. Or that someone is an Eagles fanatic. I'm sure nobody in this room. Or maybe that someone's a techie. Or a never-trumper. Or a sports nut or, or a movie junkie. We, we get terms that categorize what, when someone is fascinated or absorbed or excited about something, we have names that we put on people. And they, these people got the name Christ once because they were always talking about Jesus. They were so enamored with Jesus. They were so busy talking about Jesus. They just came to be known as Christians. Oh, oh would it be that, that Jesus was so quick to come from our lips, that we would so give ourselves to adoring Jesus and praising Jesus, that we would live actually with our lives, not just sing what we're going to sing at the end of the service, but actually live it with the totality of our lives. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That, that Jesus would be known, that we would be a people known to have Jesus being first in our hearts. There's a lot to learn from this church in Antioch. So this harvest of, of evangelistic fruit, it comes from these ordinary, un, unnamed gospel spreaders, and the news of this, this wave of gospel goodness happening in Antioch, it spreads so far that the report comes back to Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas to check things out. And, and this leads to some more good that we can learn from this church in Antioch, and that is we see here a faithful commitment to examine and exhort new disciples of Christ. At least I think that's what's going on with why Barnabas is being sent there. It's possible that maybe they're just like, hey, that's great. There's, there's Christians there. Barnabas, why don't you just go and, and encourage them? We know Barnabas was an encouraging person. His name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. So maybe they just heard about some good gospel work going, they're like, hey, they, go encourage these people. I, I think given the tensions between Jews and Gentiles and how new this all was, I think there's something a little bit more, I mean, I'm sure that was maybe part of it, but it was also, I think, the church in Jerusalem saying, we need somebody to go check this out and see if it's legit. See if this is, if this is genuine. Is the Holy Spirit really doing this? We see them doing that when the gospel arrived in Samaria back in chapter 8. So uh, that's important, that there be this kind of examination to say, is this truly of the Lord? Because not all that professes, this is very important uh, just in our own day, in our own country. Uh, not, not all that professes to be Christian is truly, sincerely Christian. Right, you understand that from Scripture, right? Jesus, Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, these people were preaching the Lord Jesus. Word got back to Jerusalem. Everyone's excited about the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of my Father, they are the ones who truly I, I know. And so we live in a society where, and this number is decreasing, but at least the most recent one that I was able to find was that roughly two-thirds of Americans are Christians. I find that difficult to believe. I, I don't know. As I just survey our society, I find that difficult to believe. We were at a wedding last night, and um, I was talking to this couple uh, next to us, and this, it's an open door. When you're wearing a cross, you are just inviting me to talk to you about the Lord. And I just, so I noted this cross this young woman was wearing, and I, and, uh, I said, what's that? I, I forget what I said. I think I said, do you go to church? I forget exactly what I said, but as we're talking, she's wearing a cross that means something to her, but, but in just a short while, I discovered that this young woman and her now husband, they had been living together for some time before they were married. I'm thinking... I don't want to make a judgment just on that one thing, but I think there's a lot of people, they want to call Jesus Lord, but when it comes to Jesus' commands regarding sexual ethics, they can leave that at the door. And that's not Christianity. Whether it's sexual ethics or any other kind of sin, 
you, you don't just say that you're a Jesus follower and do your own thing in any area of your life. There's a lot of confusion about this. So I believe there is now in our own day, as there was in the first century, the need for those who profess Christianity uh, to be guarded from the dangers of hypocrisy and self-deception by having their professions of faith examined by others to affirm, yes, this is the fruit of God's grace. Yes, this is true salvation. The Holy Spirit, as we've been praying about the work of the Spirit and singing about the work of the Spirit, yes, I see the work of the Spirit. And that is why I would preach an entire sermon on church membership from this verse. You think that's crazy. Well, even if I am crazy that this verse is a big advocate, I would say there's plenty of scripture that teaches the good of having a Christian submit their profession of faith to the church because there's no apostles or emissaries of the apostles to go and examine these things today. Jesus has given that authority to local churches that we would not just self-identify as followers of Jesus, but we would have our profession of faith recognized and affirmed by a group of Christians who will examine what we believe and how we're living and say, this is of the Lord. So I could preach a sermon about church membership, but let's move on because there's more good to see here. Barnabas came, and some people are fearful about even what I just said regarding church membership because it sounds very critical, maybe like we're out to get somebody or we're going to come with a real critical eye. Barnabas did not come with a critical eye. Barnabas recognized and rejoiced in the grace of God that was so evident. That's what Barnabas does here. And so we see not just the need for examination, but the need for encouragement. Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And so when he saw the grace of God, I trust that he didn't just see the grace of God, but he said something about the grace of God that he had seen. He said, I see the Lord at work in you. It is by grace that you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And I trust Barnabas was was effusive in highlighting specific ways that he saw the grace of God at work in these brothers and sisters. He saw the grace of God, he was encouraged by that grace, and he exhorted these believers to keep on trusting Jesus, right? To, he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose because he knew what we know that the call of Jesus is not just to go out and make converts, but it's to go and make disciples. And that we're to teach those disciples to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So he's exhorting them, he's praising God for the grace that he sees, but he's not content to allow that grace to just remain there. He wants them to grow, he wants to exhort them, remain faithful, persevere, continue on. And to that end, he goes and he gets his old friend, Saul. We last left Saul in chapter 9. He was, he had, his life had been threatened himself. He goes to Tarsus, to his hometown. And so Barnabas goes, gets Saul, brings him back, and they carry on a teaching ministry with the church for a year. Notice that word church, too. I, I, what, what verse is that? It's a, it's a verse. It's in the Bible. 26. No, is it 26? Yeah. Why would I question my wife? <laughs> right. Where did church come from? They were going. They were making disciples. They were spreading the word. They didn't just leave these disciples, scattered as isolated disciples. They were a church. They gathered them into a church. And so Barnabas and Saul give themselves to this teaching ministry. They know there's a need for perseverance, for exhortation, for encouragement, and so they give themselves to teaching. So I want you to note here, again, I'm, just, I'm, I'm giving you highlights, and you can work them out and think about these. The earliest Christians understood that sound living that living faithfully and fruitfully for Jesus would be the, the fruit of sound teaching. They gathered the churches. They knew the churches needed teaching. Perhaps they remembered the words of Jesus himself when Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They were committed to teaching the word of God to this brand new church. 
So don't, don't ever think you're in danger of getting too much teaching from God's word. There is a danger, James tells us about this in James chapter 1, there's a danger of hearing a lot of teaching and not doing anything with it. That's not good. I don't think we're in danger of getting too much teaching. Avail yourself of opportunities in this church. There are many. There could be more. There could be more ways that we teach you. But avail yourself of the opportunities to be taught God's word. Do not think when you, when you pray for the teaching of God's word, as it happens here on Sunday mornings or in Sunday school or in your small groups, do not think when you pray for those teachings, uh, when you uh, seek to apply that teaching to your lives, when you discuss it with others, when you contribute uh, financially as so many of you do so generously so that the word of God can be taught in this church, do not think that's a small thing. Jesus builds his church through the teaching of his word. And so may we be as diligent as these saints in Antioch to grow in the knowledge of it. We see that they were eager evangelists. We see they were so known for loving Jesus. They were called Christians there. They were faithful. They were examining these new converts. They were building them up to maturity with the truth of Jesus. And we see here, even in this passage, that these were not just mere hearers of God's word, but they were doers of it because we see at the end of the passage them exercising expansive generosity to meet the needs of others. We see that in verses 27 through 30. There's a prophecy that comes to the church there in Antioch of a famine that is going to come. Luke tells us that this happened during the reign of Claudius. The historians tell me that it was probably somewhere in the range of 45 to 47 AD. And you may have some questions about the the gift of prophecy or the office of prophet and how that applies to us today, what function that might have today. We could talk about that afterwards. I'd rather send you the Brooks Buser recording, honestly, but we could talk about prophecy if you want. But I don't think that the main point is to dwell on the current role or function of prophecy. I think it's to show us that when this prophecy came, the disciples in Antioch exercised an awesome generosity that was reminiscent of the generosity that was stirred up in the church of Jerusalem that we read about in chapter 2 and chapter 4. I said, I just used the phrase awesome generosity because that was the title of a sermon that I preached about a year ago from chapter two when we thought about the generosity of those saints in Jerusalem and how the generosity of Jesus fuels our being generous with each other. I'm not gonna rehearse all of that to you, but I think what's worth observing here specifically is, as I just mentioned it a moment ago, the expansiveness of this generosity in that their generosity extended beyond meeting the needs of their own local church. These Christians in Antioch determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to other believers. How far did I say the distance was between Jerusalem and Antioch? Praise God. Some of you, you're listening. This is what I say. I just love it. I just, you listen to God's word. These believers were 300 miles away. They heard, not even that there was a need right now, there's a need coming because there's a famine coming. They got together, they put together their resources. Apparently the Antioch church had some resources to give and they sent it with Paul and Barnabas. Oop, did I say Paul? You've had that that problem. Paul, Saul, you've, you've heard Jason do that thing. Saul is Paul, okay? We'll talk about that more as we go. But uh, they sent the money with those two to Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem had been generous themselves in sending a man as good as Barnabas. That was probably a hard thing to lose Barnabas, right? Who wants to lose? Son of encouragement. He's a wealthy uh, brother, we know, because he sells a piece of land and he just lays it at the apostles' feet, says, do with it what you want. That's in Acts chapter four. This is a wealthy man, a generous man, an encouraging man. They sent him. They They sent him out from their church. Go, go to Antioch and see what's going on there. And then the church in Antioch returns the generosity by sending funds. So as much as we speak of local church membership, I just spoke of it, we commend that, we think that's important. 
we're instructed from this passage that the kingdom of God is bigger than any one particular local church. And we should care. We as a local church should care about the flourishing of other churches, not just our own. Where the gospel is being preached, where the word of God is being trusted and submitted to, in in any church, whatever the denomination is, I mean, there are denominational distinctions. I'm not saying they're irrelevant, but where the gospel is being preached and where the Bible is being submitted to, we, we are not in competition with those churches. We should be celebrating their work, and we should be thinking as we have opportunity, how can we support the work of other churches, even amongst believers, that we might never see, that we might never know of? That's what we're seeking to do. Whether it's money or buildings or pastors or members, whether it's in Glassboro or in Guatemala, whether it's in Williamstown or whether it's in India or in Vietnam or Lebanon, may we use what we have to build up and bless Christ's church everywhere as we have occasion to do so. Now, again, there was a sermon series there love to just press down individually on wonderful ways that we are doing those things and ways that we could grow. There's much evidence of God's grace here amongst us and ways that we can continue to grow. But I I must hasten on to recognize the work of God in all of this. Because I, I trust that some of you, as you're hearing all that I'm saying and you're trying to process that, even as I was trying to process it through the week, it can seem daunting We could just be aware of our shortcomings and our faults. And so it's good for us to be reminded. And Luke makes it very clear to us here that God is the one who was working all this good. Verse 21, it was the hand of the Lord that these eager evangelists uh, were working behind. It was the hand of the Lord with them that caused a great number to believe and turn to the Lord. Isn't it interesting how that is exactly what we were told in 2 Chronicles 30? Did you think that was a little bit of an obscure passage to read from, 2 Chronicles chapter 30? But did you notice that the same hand of God that was with these eager evangelists blessing the ministry of the word there leading to the church in Antioch, it was the same hand of God that was with those couriers who went out calling the people of Israel to repentance. And some were laughing them to scorn, but others humbled themselves. Why? Because of how persuasive the couriers were? No. Because of how humble and, and, and righteous the people were? No. Because the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of God was with them in the book of Chronicles. The hand of God is with them in the book of Acts. It was the hand of God that gave birth to the church in Antioch. Barnabas comes down, right, to check things out, and he sees not great people doing great things, but what Luke tells us, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. Barnabas himself was a good man, and was that his own doing? What does the passage tell us about Barnabas? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. This was God. Any good that there was, any encouragement that came from Barnabas, any generosity that came from Barnabas, it came from the work of the Holy Spirit in him. And due to his ministry of encouragement and the teaching of the Apostle Paul, it says, a great many people were added to the Lord. They were added to the Lord, which means they didn't do the adding. God did the adding. So we see in many ways in this passage that it was God who was doing the work. All this good that there was in Antioch, God was doing it. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Okay, just carry the, can you just continue on the passage with me there? From him, come on Frank, you you can do this. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. I'm not asking you to amen me. I'm asking you to amen Paul. He said amen. Not to Barnabas be the glory. Not to Saul be the glory. Not to these couriers in 2 Chronicles be the glory. To God be the glory. Because it's his hand that is working. Neither he who plants, Paul said to the Corinthians, these evangelists, they were planters. Barnabas and Saul came along and they watered. Paul would go back and he would say, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God 
gives the growth. It was God who birthed the church and grew the church in Antioch, saving sinners, granting repentance, creating new life, forming the splendor of holiness and self-denying sacrifice and a relentless Jesus-freak kind of love and zeal and devotion. It was God who was doing all of that, and so it is for us. If you're here this morning and you're converted, if you love Jesus, if you have even the slightest desire to spread the good news of Jesus, to live for the hallowing of his name, that's not from you. You didn't make that happen. God did that. It's of the Lord. How could it not be? When we were dead and hopeless and helpless, he is the one who made us alive. When, when we hated him, he loved us. He was willing to sacrifice his own son for us even when we were spitting in his face in derision and scorn of him. And so as we would consider the depths of our corruption, the, the wretched, embarrassing defiance with which we have treated our creator, when we would consider even having the Holy Spirit residing in us, how we still have ongoing doubts and struggles to embrace his goodness and his wisdom and his almighty power. As we consider all that, how else could one explain any good coming to us or coming through us but that it was the Lord? It was all God's doing, and it was his doing in all things. Last, very briefly, in closing, in all things. I, I hope this encourages you, saints, because there's something I, I, I've been reading the Bible a long time, 23 years. I've, been, I've read the book of Acts a long time. I saw something this week. I never noticed it before. Maybe I'm, I trust some of you have noticed this. I never noticed this before, but it's very encouraging, I think, for those of us struggling to rest in and rejoice in the promise of Romans 8.28. How did all this good? So we've just seen, we've, there's a lot of good happening in this church in Antioch. And God did it. It was very clearly the hand of the Lord. How did it all come about? What spurred it? What fueled it? Said I would come back to it. Did I just hear somebody whisper persecution? Persecution. Look at verse 19. How did it all come about? Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch spreading the word. God wastes nothing, beloved. In all things, God works together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Stephen was a good man. We're told Stephen was a good man. He was full of the spirit and faith. He was a man, we're told in Acts chapter 6, full of grace and power his, he was winsome. He could defend the faith. He was, a, he was a budding star in the Jerusalem church. And he was slandered and lied about and stoned. And he was killed. And what we would say, we would use the term, he, his time came far too soon. But the Lord was at work on that dark day. Using the murder and the subsequent wave of persecution to catapult those disciples out from Jerusalem, bringing that word that it would start going to the ends of the earth, which is what Jesus had told them to do in the first place. So they go carrying the word everywhere, and some of them end up in Antioch. Antioch, which just happened to be a large city, the third largest, I'm told, in the Roman Empire at that time, a prominent city, an ethnically diverse city where if the gospel were to take root in that place, it would catch many different peoples. And the Lord brings a great many people to himself in Antioch. And the, the fruit is so abundant there in Antioch that Barnabas, he can't handle, he's like, I cannot handle, I cannot teach, I can't encourage, I can't do all this. And he goes and he gets Saul. And this is the part, I just never thought about this before, I never noticed this. He goes and he gets Saul. Saul is the one who was overseeing and inciting the persecution that scattered these disciples from Jerusalem in the first place. Acts chapter 8, 
uh, 1 and 3. He goes and he gets Saul, the one inciting this persecution, driving these Christians out. He goes and he gets Saul, and Saul ends up coming, staying a year, teaching the church that came into existence through the evangelism of the very disciples that he had sought to eradicate from Jerusalem. That's a really good God. That's a really wise God. That's a really powerful God. Thus, Matthew Henry says about this passage, what was intended for the hurt of the church was made to work for its good. The enemies designed to scatter and lose them, Christ designed to scatter and use them. Thus, the wrath of man is made to praise God. God wastes nothing, beloved. God wastes nothing. The existence of the church in Antioch is a testimony if we have ears to hear it and a heart to receive it, that your suffering, too, your suffering, is in the hands of a good God, and he's always working. O fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord, by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, beloved saints, you may be feeling weak and weary, discouraged and doubting, oppressed and opposed, but let us labor with the Spirit's help to be a Jesus people, a Christ people, looking to Jesus, clinging to Jesus, admiring Jesus, trusting Jesus, praying to Jesus, extolling Jesus, desiring the approval of Jesus, marveling at Jesus, speaking of Jesus, sacrificing for Jesus, and I trust that you will find as well that the hand of the Lord is with you, even as he was with our ancestors in Antioch. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be pleased to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus. There's much here, as we've noted. There's much here in this church to emulate, to aspire to, to grow in. Give us grace that we might become more and more conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Give us grace that we might praise you and celebrate the many, many ways in which you have poured grace upon this church in the last 30 years. And may we be trusting steadfastly in our own personal trials and in the struggles that we meet as we seek to be faithful to join in Jesus' work of building his church here. Whether they're personal struggles, whether they're corporate struggles, whether they're missional struggles or evangelistic struggles or discipleship struggles or parenting struggles in all the ways that we may feel burdened and weary and discouraged, may we be a people trusting in the hand of the Lord to do the work that you've called us to do, that we might give you the praise and glory that you are deserving of. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.